Hello, and welcome to episode 112 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Just fine, Monica. How are you? I'm good. I didn't get rained on while walking the dog, or at least not very much, and no trees fell on me, so that was very exciting. I heard owls in the big tree last night oh, in between wow. downpours or yeah. whatever it was doing out there. Oh, they were so sweet. There's one that has a really high hoot, and the other one has this really low gravelly hoot, and it just That's <laughs> it so brings have me you so seen much them? joy. I don't think they live in that tree. Uh, I think they party there cavort in that tree <laughs> nice. nice that is fun it's a pair of great horned owls and wow it's spring we have know? so it's much nature sure, in this it's a city. sure thing <laughs> people are always posting about coyotes like yes we know there are coyotes that romp in the city yeah it's nature i think it's beautiful i mean i don't want it to take anybody's pet but right vermin have at sure all right, so we are going to have a lovely little episode today on the needles, on the easel, on the table, and on the nightstand. And on the needles, yeah, just things are still continuing as they were. Have you busted into any of the new Stitches yarn? No, just the, the one that I had started last time. Okay, the poppy. The Yeah, the California poppy bundle from Nano Stitch Lab. And it is so fun. I just finished the magenta. No, it's not really magenta. It's, it's neon pink section of my Morning Sunshine Cowl by Stephanie Lotvin, also known as Tellybean Knits. So next I get to start, I think it's orange. It's like a, a deep but bright orange. So I'm pretty excited. Poppies. Like poppies. Yes, actually. <laughs> there we go. It is poppy orange. So far, it's been a fun pattern. It's one of those cowls that look like a triangular shawl wrapped around your neck, except you don't have to deal with it falling off, which is going to be great. So you start off knitting it flat. And it's really, I think it's just basically knitting and then increase stitches. And then it's got some ribbing going on in the second part. And then I haven't looked ahead to see what is coming up. I think it gets a little bit more lacy and some more interesting things happening. It makes me think of like a knitted bandana, the way Exactly. That it yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's cute. At some point I will connect it and be knitting in the round, but I haven't gotten there yet. Just excited to start a new color and I have to decide if it is going to be a project that will come along with me because Boy 2 has spring break next week and he and I are going on an adventure and I don't know what I want to bring to knit. It's very stressful. <laughs> very stressful, people. Big I know, decisions. I know you know. I mean, this one is mini skeins, so it is five little balls of yarn. I guess I could take the pink out now. I don't need it anymore. But I have it in my cute little California puppy project bag, which is a little bit big for travel. Like It doesn't squish down as much because it's very solid and lovely, and you can make it into a yarn bowl. It's really fantastic. Put it in a different bag. I know, but I love it in that bag. <laughs> you have to have your project bag and your project mat. Don't you know this? No. Oh. <laughs> it's a thing. It's a okay. Thing. So, I mean, probably I will just move it to another bag because I do think it would be a good kind of evening wind down project. It's not too complicated, but it'll keep me busy. But on that note, I did make an effort and finish Simon's Sail Away Socks. OMG heel socks officially by Megan Williams in my, oh, this is the last time I'll get to say it, online super soccer for fuck merino extra fine color. 
wish we had like a laugh track or an applause track. <laughs> I'm sure they're out there. That would be a, a new technical challenge for me. So it's a blue and gray gradient self-striping, I guess we would call it. And yeah, it just occurred to me, I was about halfway through the second leg and I'm doing them toe up. So I had a quarter of the project left to do, not even a third, maybe. No, that would be more. Anyway, math. Very little of the project left to do. And so I wasn't going to take them with me and then have completed socks after, I don't know, like two hours of knitting. So that was just silly. So I decided I should probably try and finish them to free up the needles, which means then I can have another pair of socks, which is absolutely something I need for travel because we'll be going on some college tours and I would definitely want socks for that. Yeah. So that, that was exciting. I just kind of decided that last night and put on some TV and just finished those off. So that was, that was great. And um, then mostly though, I have been focusing on my Gridlines sweater by Suzanne Summer in the Lemonade Shop Simple Sock in Ugg People. I am halfway through Wow, the first sleeve. Oh, I thought you meant the <laughs> sweater. <laughs> well, no, the, so the body is all done. Okay. I've started on the first sleeve. There is still the second wow. sleeve. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and the thing I forgot about the collar. So we are really playing yarn chicken and I am pretty sure I'm going to lose, which is entirely my own fault. The problem is with this sweater because it's knit side to side, I can't really just unwind it from the bottom up and make it a little shorter. I would have to take apart. And I've tried it on. I think I could have made it one size shorter, but whatever. It is what it is. I mean, I like the length it is. I just think it could have been a little shorter and then it would, when I block it, it'll, it would go back to being perfect. Such is life. So I don't know for sure. I'm going to, what I wish I had done is maybe done the collar first. And I kind of forgot about that. So then I would know exactly how much yarn I would have left for the sleeves. I'm thinking about other possibilities. Maybe I'll see if I have some just plain light gray and kind of alternate skeins with my actual yarn and my plain gray. I don't think you would notice it very much because it's speckled, right? So it's mostly plain gray. It just has these lovely speckles of bright colors all over. So I think that could work. Also, I've been thinking about fading in one of the neon colors, one of the speckle colors on the sleeves. So having like the cuffs be a bright color. And then I guess I could do the collar in a bright color as well, which might be too much and would get me back to the problem I was having with my Paul Klee sweater, but less so. And it would look more intentional. So we will see. It would all depend on how much, how much actual yarn I need to finish this project. But I am pretty sure I'm going to need additional yarn. And I took a quick peek at Lemonade Shop's website, and she does not currently have that one. And I can't remember if it was like a one-time color thing that she had done or if it is one that routinely comes up. So if it's going to be a significant amount, I might email her and see like if, if it's coming back or if I'm just out of luck. Or sometimes people on Ravelry will have leftover bits that they're willing to to donate to other people's projects or, you know, sell. That would be an option as well. So there there are plans and possibilities, but I just need to actually see how much yarn I need. Uh, But I mean, to be fair, I just kind of was winging this whole thing. I did not swatch. I didn't really fully think through sizing. Yeah, it was was a little bit, yeah, I think this will work. So this is very relatable. All on me. 
but I'm I am excited about how it is turning out and how it looks, and I think it'll be a super comfy and wearable sweater, even though it does have neon speckles all over it. I like so. a neon speckle. I do too, but I, yeah, it's not something I normally wear. But I'm I'm growth more. mindset exactly constantly <laughs> constantly growth mindset. How about you? Anything on your needles? Not knitting, but. I have been sewing a ton, actually. We had an event last weekend, and I made a pair of pants and a jacket. Oh, wow. I know. I made the Nenafar jacket from Deer and Doe. This is an indie pattern. I have sewn other indie patterns in the past, and I think the really great thing about them are the instructions. And if you're thinking that you might want to try your hand at sewing something a little bit complicated, I would recommend an indie pattern because the order of operations are really spelled out for you. Mm, That's nice. For the jacket, I had been struggling with arm's eye placement. This really helped me figure out exactly how to set in that sleeve properly. And I am so happy with it. This is a complete wearable muslin. I had salvaged this fabric from Scrap. I've talked about Scrap before. Scrap is our creative reuse center, and I get a lot of practice fabric there. They just did a big fabric sale over the past couple of weeks, and I had probably four or five yards of this gorgeous wool. I think it has a little cashmere in it. It was just beautiful. Kind of a purplish gray color. Exceptional. To be sure, it stank like mothballs to high heaven. It was so stinky. And I didn't think I could salvage it. It also had some little moth munchy bites taken out of it. This doesn't scare me because I could tell that the fabric had totally been... Like, it, the moths had vacated the premises. So I washed this thing 16 times, I think. Well, that's an exaggeration. I soaked it in vinegar and baking soda. Once, twice, three times. I never put it in the dryer because everything said the second you dry it, mm. the mothball will will set in. And I didn't want to dry this beautiful wool either. I was pretty sure it would felt on me. So then I sprinkled it with baking soda and that kind of helped a little bit. But the real ticket was letting it air out on the balcony for a couple days. Two days of that and I had pulled it all in and left it in a bucket in my studio. And one day I had walked into the studio and I didn't smell anything, no mothballs. So huge success. I had plenty of yardage of this thing. So I washed it again in a wool wash, got it really nice and clean, ironed it, cut out my pattern pieces, which was a little bit of an obstacle course because I was avoiding the moth munchies and cut out this jacket, stitch it together and it fits. It's so, it's a little bit big. Next time I'll make a couple little changes, but this was my muslin. This was my wearable muslin. Super cute, gorgeous fabric. I am just thrilled. Then I made a pair of pull-on stretch pants. I used a hybrid of a pattern that I had and a pair of pants, an existing pair of uh, ready-to-wear pants that fit perfectly, but just were a little bit too high in the rise. So between those two, figured it out, cut out this pair of pants and, you know, 
the gorgeousness of, of stretch knit is they fit great. I didn't really have to do any modifications. They came together in an hour. I don't so fast, so fast stretch pants. That's amazing. So, so easy. Unlike the pants that are on my body right now, which, which are adorable. They're adorable, but they still need some work. They are a work in progress. These are the Strata Pants from Paper Cut Patterns. That is a, I think it's a New Zealand pattern company. Again, indie pattern, incredible instructions. I now feel very proficient at setting in a zipper fly. The pockets are a breeze. I think my next thing to work on is pants fitting. And I just discovered at the end of this (laughs) uh, project that I need to look into top-down, center-out fitting method for pants. It's like a whole thing that I didn't know existed. So that's my next deep dive for the sewing. But they're on my body, and they're not terrible. They're not perfect yet, but it's a work in progress. Right. And I and I told you this already. I think they are not perfect only if you stand there and ask someone, do these fit right? <laughs> Otherwise, I don't think anybody would notice. So, Right. Well... It's one of those... Yeah, you want it to be perfect. As it says in the instructions or some some snippet that I was reading, they are already 90% better than any ready-to-wear pant that I could go in and pick up. So that's saying something. So I've been trying to just sew on the weekends because otherwise it just... It takes a really long time to sew something, aside from those stretch pants, which were like lightning fast. So... On the easel, some interesting things in there. Still working on a landscape house painting for my brother. Then I had a spectacular portrait fail. That was a problem of contrast, I think. I was painting an older woman. Generically speaking, as we age, our features fade a little bit. You know, gray hair, lighter lip color paler skin in some cases. This is not true for everyone, but generally speaking, that is the shift with painting an older person is you have to be a little bit careful about the values. Well, the portrait of the woman that I'm painting, she's putting on lipstick and the lipstick looks great on her, but in my painting, it feels too loud. Mm. And then I tried to fix it and and it was like this terrible domino effect. And so... I'm going to leave her alone for a little bit because she deserves a little more dignity than that painting. Then I heard about, okay, this is going to be a really weird thing in the middle of the easel section. So there's all of this stuff going around about chat GPT, this machine learning writing program or whatever. Well, I'm not interested, but I can see why it's causing people to get a little upset. But then I heard that Google is in beta stage on their machine learning platform called Bard. And this is meant for creatives. And I am creative. So I thought, I'll ask Google Bard what I should paint next. Well, come to find out, I'm like one of many people who want to try out Google Bard. And I was on the wait list for a few days. And then they let me in. Nice. And then I asked Google Bard a hundred times a day. Google Bard, what should I paint now? Bard, what kind of a bird should I paint? Or what kind of an interesting 
painting can I come up with today? Sort of generic questions for the bard. And then the answers that I got back were hysterical. A very generic, like the five types of paintings. You could paint a portrait of Mm. a famous person. You could paint a landscape of your favorite place. You could paint a still life of your favorite objects. Yeah, no kidding. Be specific. I wanted to say, Courtney, paint me a stack of books with a tangerine and a tarnished spoon. Like I want that specificity, but it's so generic. It cracks me up. However, (laughs) it did give me a great idea. (laughs) Thanks, Bard. I asked it, you know, I'm struggling to figure out what I should paint for a calendar. And I asked Bard, what kind of art calendars should I paint for 2024? And it gave me some very generic answers. You know, a calendar of landscapes, a calendar of portraits, a calendar of objects. But it said a calendar of food, which Mm. did not occur to me. There must be a lot of food calendars out there because it's so generic. So I've been having some fun with that. And since I was looking for such specificity, I realized that my brain works that way and I should just let my own brain dictate what I should paint a still life of. I got some amazing daffodils, just bright, gorgeous yellow as daffodils are. And I set them up with a piece of quartz and a pot from the bonsai people and like a deck of playing cards. And then I taped up this, I had found this scrap of gorgeous fabric that's too small to make anything out of. And I put it up behind, I drew it and tried to paint it and it didn't work. And I redrew it and I'm recommitted to this painting because the daffodils are so great. So it's not that Bard wasn't helpful. It just reminded me that my own brain does exactly what I need it to do if I give it the space to do it. That's what's on the easel. Excellent. Okay, on the table, I had a hard time coming up with stuff for this episode. I after years and years and years and years and years of really not repeating things, despite the name of the podcast, you know, what I make for dinner, I always want to find something new and have a new recipe and try new things. I have really been falling back on, on repeats, which is kind of cool because it makes things easier. And I generally have the ingredients or I know what I need. And, you know, it's easy when it's time for dinner, it's just you know, here we go. I'm a heavy repeater. So yeah. Yeah. But I've never been like that. So but but it does make it harder to provide content for our lovely listeners. But I did want to say I made another pie crust. Gluten free. My own gluten free pie crust. We have so many eggs right now. We get eggs from our produce and we just I I don't know, haven't been eating them. So I've been trying to use them up. Uh, So I thought quiche for dinner. Yum. It was track meet night. So I thought a quiche would be great. I could make it ahead of time and then just have it when we got home because we never quite sure when we get home. And I thought, oh, I'll just, you know, when I go to the grocery store, I'll just find the frozen gluten-free pie crusts. And they didn't have any. So I had to make my own. But it was fine because I, I thought, all right, I've done this before. I'll just get a basic one. And I have just stopped messing around with the chilling it beforehand. I'm just like, I don't have time for that. It doesn't work for me. You know, mix it, roll it out. I did put it in the pie crust pan and then chilled it for a while. I chill it. Yeah, I chilled it. I didn't freeze it. I just chilled it for a while. 
maybe a half an hour or so, and then threw it in the oven. And it was great. I just pictured like... <laughs> I mean, there there are hand gestures going on here that that you're all are not privy to. Yeah, just tossed it in. It turned out really, really well. I was super pleased. It was nice and and flaky and and delicious. And I am a huge proponent of the hasty pie crust. I just feel like the pie crust doesn't care. Just throw it together and make it happen. Like whatever works for you. I think there's there's like an anxiety. Well, there's this mythology <laughs> about the pie crust, right? Yeah. And, and you, yeah, you yeah. got over that at a very young age very. because you had to. Right. The rest of us are still sort of traumatized by all the cooking shows and the, the books and, oh, you need to chill it and slowly add the water. It's like, no, apparently not. Really not. I pulled out the food processor again and just... I love it in the food processor. I love it with a little bit of vodka. I think it makes it super tender. Uh, I have not tried that yet. This was fine. I don't know if it would matter for the gluten. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's something to try for next time. I could try it. Yeah. Yeah. But I felt very accomplished. And bravo. It was great. And yeah. And I made the whole thing in the morning, went off to the track meet. Kid did great. Came home. I popped it in the oven for a little bit longer just to warm it up because it had been in the fridge i mean it would have been fine and i think we had salad with it or something there was a lot of a lot of greens it was what did i put in there spinach and cheese lots of cheese always gotta have cheese well yeah (laughs) big fan of cheese in this house so that was great that was that was super fun and then i made yesterday a pineapple upside down cake yes yum very good this is from Snacking Cakes by Yossi Arefi. I'm sure I've talked about, certainly about the book before. I love this one. She has the, the powdered donut cake and a whole section on chocolate cakes. And you mostly, you make them in one bowl and you put them in most, I mean, you can change out the pan, obviously, if you want, but mostly an eight by eight pan. So it's just super easy, super fast, nothing fancy, but some really great flavors. So the pineapple upside down cake, I know I've made one before, but I can't, I don't think it was this one. So this one, you use fresh pineapple, you slice it up really thin and you make a caramel, but you throw in some cinnamon and a bay leaf as well. And then toss the pineapple in there, put it in the pan, make your batter, top it over the pineapple and bake it. And it was delicious. Well, yeah. I mean, it's one of those recipes that's so classic and has been so cheapened. Perhaps, yeah, with the red cherry. I mean, I have nothing against maraschino cherries. Let's be clear here, but a lot of people don't like it, and it does make it seem very whatever fifties, seventies, whatever, whatever era that is from. So, but this this was felt very modern. Had the nice caramely business going on. I did. Her recipes usually start with putting a parchment sling, so you can just pull the cake out. I never bother because it's gone in two seconds, and I'm not that fancy. I don't need my square snacking cake to be presented on a platter. But this one, I did. it did occur to me that since I'm going to turn it upside down, putting some parchment in there might be good. So I actually did it in a round pan because it's easier to draw on the parchment to make it fit. Oh, I, so just, could... I just fold the parchment, you yeah. know, and fit it into the rectangle. And but then... it's a circle. Oh, oh. Yeah, I guess I could. But do... for, for a rectangular pan, I just fold oh, it. I don't yeah. cut it up or anything. Oh, I see. Yeah, I guess that would work too. Well, anyway, it worked fine. I was a little bit worried that the caramel would sneak under, but it seems to have been, been okay. There was plenty of 
deliciousness on the top. Yum. So that was that was a happy little family last night for dessert. And again, since we're only three, we do have some left at the moment. We might we might even get to today's dessert. Probably not. It's a possibility. And then one of the things that I decided to repeat is a recipe from Cook 90. Courtney had borrowed this book and not given it back to me yet, which was fine. <laughs> but I texted her and said, hey, can you send me a photo of this recipe because I would like to make it? She's like, oh, I'm actually making that tonight. So she sent me the recipe. So this was roasted sweet potatoes with chorizo and mushrooms and lime crema. Uh-huh. And I had made it before. That was so my I, first foray. Yeah. So I decided to make it. And so we thought we would talk about this one recipe that we both just happened to make. And so mine, I used a plant-based gluten-free chorizo, which is not as delightful as real chorizo. I think you get the flavor, but it doesn't crisp up and... It doesn't behave the same way. So I have sort of, it's a little bit of chorizo mush and you don't get the the delightful oils leaking out and, and coating everything. So that was maybe not most ideal, but the flavor is there. Thinking about it, it, was, it seemed like a kind of odd combination of with the chorizo and the mushrooms, but I mean, it was tasty. Sweet potatoes are always good and topping it with red onions and uh, cilantro. I thought that this was the recipe that you guys were tossing about after the restoration hardware thing. Nope. So I had, I had visions for it. So oh. I, no, no, it was still great. I did a double batch because. Oh, I also microwaved my sweet potatoes instead of actually roasting them. What? But they get so charry and I good. Know, but okay. It took 10 minutes instead of an hour or whatever. Half I hour. didn't mind because it's cold in my house. Yeah. And if it's an excuse to warm up the kitchen and put the oven on, then I do. So I, there are only two of us who like sweet potatoes in my house. So I made two enormous sweet potatoes and cut them in half and roasted them off. And I used actual chorizo because we, that's what we eat. I followed it pretty, pretty straight because I knew that we'd be chatting about it when we realized the serendipity of us both making this recipe. My only hiccup with it, not even hiccup, was that I forgot to get mushrooms. And so I used some dehydrated porcini mushrooms. I rehydrated them and then give them a little toss in the some of the chorizo drippings, which I gotta say, <laughs> that was pretty excellent. Good move. So everything in ours got pretty crispy and great. I made the mistake of leaving the components separate. So all of the topping stuff was in the skillet and the sweet potatoes were on the tray and somebody went back for seconds. And so I lost some of the goodness for the rest of the week because that was going to be my mm -hmm. temple lunch for the week. But that's okay. I still had sweet potatoes. And some lime And if crema. someone goes for seconds, that's pretty nice. Right. Right. So, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was delicious. How is it different from the one that you guys had at Restoration Hardware? Oh, well, that one doesn't have the chorizo and the mushrooms. That one's just roasted sweet potatoes. Ah, uh, it does have the... Lime crema? Lime crema, I yeah. think. And you roast it. It's similar. I think it's the same thing that you cut it in half. I think you start it roasting it cut side down. Mm-hmm. On, in a hot pan with butter in there already. So it kind of gets that caramelizing going on right away. And then you flip it over. 
and then for the second half and keep roasting it Mm, okay and that was the although that is not what they do at restoration hardware theirs involves coal roast coal fire fire, roasting yeah. yeah this one is just super tender and delicious that one is from the simply genius recipes i think it's on food 52 somewhere okay uh with our sweet potato deliciousness I made turkey chimichangas, speaking oh, of a way back yeah. recipe. Turkey chimichangas, our original investor here at the podcast. It was like one of the first recipes that I talked about yeah. when we started podcasting because it, it was such a crowd pleaser in my house. And it is cabbage and beans and olives and cilantro and turkey ch- cheese and salsa. And then turkey, if you are... Uh, carnivore, all sort of mixed up and then folded into a tortilla, a big tortilla, and then baked in the oven for like 20 minutes. And if you use deli turkey, I always search out Zoe's or like one of the low sodium ones, and you can get some decent deli turkey like that if you if you know where to look. The thing that I did differently with this one was I put in a can or half a can of crushed pineapple. And it was so delicious. And I think the acid in the pineapple helped cook down the cabbage a little Uh bit better. And it was delicious. And I will heretofore do that again. Those are also really good. I haven't made them in a while because of the flour, mostly because of the flour tortilla thing. They're really good for like making ahead if you have kids doing different events, activities, or, you know, people in general. So you could just have them kind of ready to go and people can grab them and... Yeah, when I they try, are ready. I try to undercook them. I mean, they're they're all it's all yeah. edible from the get go. So I try to undercook them on the first night so that if I'm reheating them the second night that they're not too charred. I had a kid home for spring break and I taught him how to make key lime pie. Oh. That was his one request for spring break was key lime pie. I was thinking about this about reducing sugar in recipes. And I had heard something that you can cut back the sugar by a third in nearly every baking recipe. It doesn't change the chemistry of the bake. Hmm. I don't know if that's true for everything, but I have started attempting this. And as I was making the key lime pie, I thought next time it calls for two cans of sweetened condensed milk, which is a lot. It's a big pie, though. It goes in a nine-inch spring form, so it's pretty big. But next time, I'm going to attempt it with just one can of sweetened and one can of unsweetened. It's too sweet for me, totally. I can't have more than a bite of it. And then the other thing this week, I made banana bread, and I cut back. It calls for almost a cup of sugar, and I cut it back to just, just over a half a cup. So half I halved the sugar and it was phenomenal it was so good you could taste the banana oh yeah I would say bananas are pretty sweet so yeah so I'm learning some little tricks here that will work better for how we want to be yeah how we want to be trying things then I made a really fabulous garden herb shrimp scampi with linguine from half-baked harvest and I used the fermented lemons. Oh, fun. It called for lemon juice and zest. And I didn't have a fresh one. And I thought, huh, that's what the preserved lemons are for. And it j- did add this depth of flavor to it that I thought was really great. They are cured in salt. 
So they needed a good rinse, and I was mindful of that, that I didn't season it anywhere else. So that was really successful. And in fact, I think I could have used a little more garlic, if anything. I also repeated the pesto turkey meatball and or it's orecchietti, I think, from Smitten Kitchen. I did it with, I don't know, fusilli or something like that. That's a great repeat of a recipe in case people are looking. You know what that would be good with? Cascatelli. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and then lastly, I saw this quickie video of somebody just oven roasting some shredded cabbage and there was this awesome dressing on it. And it was miso and lemon juice and a little bit of maple syrup. And I instantly wanted it. And I had a head of cabbage in the fridge. So I shredded it up, put it on the tray. The recipe said 400 for 30 minutes, chucked it in the oven and was continuing on with my whatever I was making. And then 28 minutes in, I opened the oven and the cabbage had evaporated. It was little blackened shoestrings. It was like pretty much gone, but it was still pretty good, like crispy and it was yeah, kind of Smith like if Kitchen we, has that crispy when you do salt kale and chips, yeah. <laughs> they just disappear. There's a moment where they're just gone, yeah. Yeah, uh, vaporized, I guess. Oh my gosh. But the dressing was great, and now I want to <laughs> think about what I can, and I did use the fermented lemons in that as well i just minced it and then put it in so it's like a little bit of chunky texture and and that was delicious so there's some mileage to be had with the fermented lemons nice you have a ton of food stuff this this time it's great i'm tired of cooking (laughs) (laughs) that does happen all right on the nightstand i'm gonna take you all on a journey the alchemist. <laughs> Skipping ahead. Yes. So my my flight of books has apparently turned into a very long game of telephone, as far as I can tell. So my first two books had something in common. Books two and three had something in common. Then books three and four, four and five, as you will see. So the first two books that I talked about last time, we had a writer's journey and racism in America and ghost children. And then books two and three was my Jewish mysticism. Books three and four, it's a personal journey and multifaceted, not quite religious religion stuff. So as Courtney said, The Alchemist by Paul Coelho. Oh, I forgot to write down who the translator is because he is Brazilian. So this was originally written in the Portuguese a million years ago. I mean, not really. It's been 20. It's been 20 years since I read it. Yeah, well, I have the 25th anniversary edition that came out in 2014. So it was in, yeah, like the mid mid 80s that it was originally written. So it's been out for a while. I had never read it. This was a book club choice because my my co-leader had not read it either. So I think it's one of those books. You think everyone has read it and you are probably not the only one who has not read it. But anyway, we had a lovely discussion. Two of the people had read it and the rest of us hadn't. And they had both read it like in college, early 20s, and were super impressed with it. And then coming back, we were all a little more cynical about it at this point in our lives. Yeah. So when did you read it? Like how old? In in college, kind of? Um, After college, when we first moved here, I joined a very weird book group 
for a hot second, and this group chose The Alchemist to read, and I read it with the book group, and I liked it but didn't love it. It's very short. It's uh-huh. it's a, maybe 200 pages. That's how I knew this wasn't the book group for me is because oh, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> so it's the story of a little Spanish shepherd who starts having a recurring dream, and so he goes to a fortune teller to find out what the dream is, and she says, oh, you have a treasure to find near the pyramids in Egypt. He thinks about it, and then he is still debating about what he's going to do, because what he's going to do with the sheep. And he runs into this old man who turns out to be a king who tells him about a personal legend. And everyone has a personal legend, which is kind of like their destiny, and you feel it in your heart, and it gets really hard as you get older to pay attention because there's all these other things going on in your life. So, But if you hold true to your personal legend and what you hear in your heart and watch for the signs, you can make your personal legend come true. So he decides to sell the sheep, goes to Africa, starts looking for his treasure, has a lot of adventures, loses all his money multiple times, meets desert tribes people and a beautiful woman. And it's it's basically an adventure story, but with this weird semi-religious mystical thing going on that, I mean, certainly at this point in my life, I'm like, yeah, I'm not buying this. <laughs> I don't know. I'm... I've generally been a pretty cynical person my whole life, I think. I don't know that I ever would have bought it. I definitely had a lot of questions about this this philosophy. But, I mean, it was it was interesting, and it fit into my flight. So I had to take a break from my 1,000-page Books of Jacob. So I'm going to mention it again, because I did read another 500 pages oh my goodness. this past two weeks. I did finish it. But as I'm reading it, I picked it back up after reading The Alchemist. There is a paragraph that basically is the entire philosophy of The Alchemist. I was like, wait a minute, I just read this book. What is this doing here? So I was laughing. All right. It's not a gold rush bordello or anything, but... It's a game of telephone (laughs) is what it is. Everyone's taking parts of the book from before and then changing things. So I thought that was hilarious. I also, and I think I mentioned this, the Books of Jacob is based on an actual person. And I purposefully did not look up how much of it was based on his life until I had finished it. And the answer is... A whole heck of lot of it. They knew a lot about this person. I mean, he was a serious, yeah. Not it was like beyond a cult. It was like a religious sect. I mean, it was it was its own thing. Like thirty thousand people. I mean, all over Eastern Europe, this was a dude. There was <laughs> sketches of his deathbed scene in the papers when he died. I mean, it was so that was fascinating. His daughter took over after. I mean, it was evangelical chicanery going on, here. <laughs> right? I, well, yeah, like they would. People would send their sons to train with him, along with a large gift of money. Wow. So very interesting. Apparently, one of the the granddaughter of one of his original followers became this world-famous pianist. We have a Supreme Court justice who is a descendant of one of his followers. Yeah. They're like, they're everywhere. So it was fascinating. Yeah. Really interesting. Really interesting. I'm glad I read that book. And the other thing that was interesting about it is it was the pages were in reverse. So you start on 955 and end on page one. It's kind of a nod to how the Hebrew books go, although you do read it front to back. But it's just the pages are are labeled in reverse. So I thought that was interesting. It was it was that was a really interesting book. And so then my final one, I think, in this game of telephone is Tread of Angels by Rebecca Roanhorse. And she wrote Black Sun, which is a book that I love. It's the beginning of a trilogy. Only the first two are out so far. Fantasy book, 
with world building based on indigenous Mexican cultures. So this one is a little different. And apparently, besides being a lawyer, she has her master's of theology. Like she went to Catholic school and so was deep into, I don't know that she's terribly Catholic, but she loves theology. Mm. So this book, again, short, maybe 200 pages, is actually a mystery novel, detective kind of book. But in this world where Lucifer has fallen and his descendants are still being punished for it, basically. But they are the only people who can see the substance that they have to mine to power their world. So they have a little bit of, no, they don't really have power. They're miners. So it takes place in this kind of Old West mining town with you've got the rich people who are the elect. You've got the fallen who are the miners and the poor people and they're looked down upon. And our heroine is Celeste. And her dad was one of the elect. Her mom was a fallen, but she doesn't have the the fallen have gold rims around their irises. So you can tell that they're one of the bad people, but hers don't. So she can pass. So she lived with her dad for a while. She's back in town. She's working as a dealer at a casino where her sister is singing. One night, her sister wakes up next to a dead man who's all stabbed and bloody. And so everyone obviously thinks she did it. And their sister is trying to figure out who it was because obviously it wasn't her little sister. So it was a really, it was a cool mystery. The world building is not as successful as her other stuff. It felt a little bit like she was playing around with things a little bit. Like it's clearly not our world, but she described a house as looking Victorian. So Ah. it didn't even necessarily feel like we had gotten to the Victorian age yeah, although that was a very long period but of time. But it took it took you out of the time, yeah, out of the place a little bit, yeah. and it so a little bit seemed like she was writing it in between other things and not t- entirely polished. But still, it was a cool murder mystery. Some interesting things going on there. So if you like her other books, it could be a, a good quick read. And then two audiobooks that have nothing to do with anything else: <laughs> A Royal Affair by Alison Montclair, which is the second in the Sparks and Bainbridge detective series. We're right after World War II. Iris and Gwen live in London and they started a marriage bureau. And after they solved the recent murder and got some good publicity, things are going very well. Gwen's cousin shows up, who is a lady-in-waiting to the Queen, and they need some help because someone sent a letter to Princess Elizabeth saying, I have some scandalous documents about your possible intended. And this is like right when Elizabeth and Philip started becoming a thing. And so the palace wants to hire Gwen and Iris to investigate because they'll be discreet and they're sort of outside the normal channels. So it's this this whole fun thing of looking into Prince Philip's family and what's going on and sending, they don't even know who sent the letter or what they have. So there's all this investigating. Um, So this one is less of a murder mystery. Someone does get murdered, but that's not, it's sort of not even tangential. It's part of the plot, but not the whole plot. So this was, again, super fun. I really like these two characters. And their cast of friends is really great. Iris is is maybe dating a gangster. <laughs> That's kind of fun. There's a lot of, lot of stuff going on. And book three is not on audio, or at least not through my library. So I have to figure out what I'm going to do next. Because I think there's a third and maybe even a fourth book. And they're really fun. That is fun. And then finally, Bloomsbury Girls by Natalie Jenner. I also listened to, this is actually apparently the second in a series, which I had not realized. The first was the Jane Austen Society, 
Did you ever read that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this it. is this is the second one. It takes place in London right after World War II. I guess I have a little <laughs> London after World War II flight going. Bloomsbury Books, and we have three women who end up working there, and there's men who work there too. And so one of the women who's the newest employee was in the Jane Austen Society. She has lost her place at Cambridge, or she lost out on a research position at Cambridge. And so she comes to London to find a job and gets a job in the rare books section of this bookstore. Grace is a working mom because her husband has a lot of problems from the war. Vivian is a very independent, modern young woman. She lost her fiancé during the war and wants to be a writer. They all have kind of secrets, and it was a really fun book. I thought it was going to be super light, and there was a little, little bit of seriousness. I mean, there's a lot of misogyny in their work and life in general. So there's a lot of the changes coming in the world kind of being foreshadowed. They meet a lot of fun people like... Daphne du Maurier. So I love that. And a lot of other famous and influential women. So this was a really fun, fun book. And the audio was quite good and easy to listen to. And so I once I realized there was a first book, I have gone back. And so now I'll be listening to Jane Austen Society, which I missed out on in the first time. Good stuff. Yeah, it's been fun. Okay, I have five. Busy, busy. One is a little book appetizer. I picked up Things to Look Forward to by Sophie Blackall. Sophie Blackall is an illustrator, and she did this really sweet book probably halfway through COVID while dealing with losing someone that was important to her. She just made a collection of like 52 things to look forward to, and it is sweet, sweetly illustrated and not wrong and a good reminder of... So things in general for anyone? Or... Yeah. Oh. yeah. Okay. It's simple things, you know, like your morning coffee, but it's uh-huh. also visiting with visiting a museum with a friend and fresh flowers. And I don't know. It's, it's kind of a sweet, hopeful book that isn't just COVID adjacent. I think it was more coming from a place of healing from grief. And so I, that's why I'm adding it to my list. Plus, it's very sweetly illustrated. Then I listened to The Whistler, a John Grisham. I oh. I haven't listened to John, well, I haven't read John Grisham in a million years. This was my companion whilst sewing. And I was telling Monica earlier that my serger machine is really loud. And so I'd have to pause the serger so that I didn't lose track of Lacey Stoltz. And she's in charge of judicial review in Florida. Of course she is. Is this a new one or an old one? Or? I think it is pretty new. I am not up to speed on the John Grisham world. It's 5,000 books, I think. He does. I really appreciated this one because, and again, I have no idea if John Grisham is writing a lot of strong female characters, but this one has some great strong female characters and an interesting plotline. And her job, Lacey's job, is to investigate shady judges in Florida. What comes across her path is the shadiest judge in the history of all judges. Truly. It's truly bad. There is an intersection with the native tribe in Florida I think it's near Tallahassee. I don't know about the accuracy of any of that. I did not research it. This is a pretty entertaining book. A few plot twists and turns. 
There was one point when I actually stopped sewing and like looked at the phone like, <laughs> no way. So if that says anything of an endorsement, there you have it. I also read Animal Life by Oger Ava Olafsdotter, which is the story of an Icelandic midwife. She's sort of stuck in her own place. She's come from a long line of midwives on both sides of her family. There's a lot of Icelandic words for midwife, but one of them is mother of light. And her grand aunt, from whom she inherits her apartment and all of her grand aunt's papers, has written theories about life and the the work of the midwife and what it means to live and be born and die. And so lots of big thoughts going on. But in this really slim book, that actually takes you through different life stages, depending on which character we are introduced to. There's definitely some grieving happening in this book. But in the end, and it's all it all happens right around the time of Christmas. It's like leading up to Christmas, which I'm not reading it as like a Catholic person and that this is coming up on Jesus's birth. But I think it's hard to not think about it that way because it's also this very deep, dark time of year in Iceland. And she goes out and she's looking at stars. And anyway, I thought it was quite beautiful, quite hopeful. And the language is interesting to me because it's translated and that cadence is always fun to read fun you know it takes it a little bit to sink into it and then boy I can't pronounce any of the Icelandic words but I think that's okay you know to just go with the flow of it and and enjoy the narrative then I read Wayward by Amelia Hart this is a new book that I found through Book of the Month Club. And this is three different stories of connected women from the Wayward family. And Wayward is a synonym of weird in older English, not old, old English. And so, of course, there are witches or like wild naturopath women who some people suspected of witchcraft, especially in 1619 with Althea. Altha, who is like the first, not the first of the line, but the first story that we learn of. She loses her mother, and then she herself is convicted of witchcraft, and how she kind of tells the backstory of why she was even in the situation is super compelling, and there are fragments of it left for future generations. Then in 1942, we have Violet, who, uh, her story is really, really difficult. All of, all three of their stories are difficult. And she has lost her mother and then finds her own special affinity towards nature. Basically, they're just into homeopathy is <laughs> what's going on here. You know, oils and herbs and stuff. And then in 2019, we have a modern day... Kate, who has inherited the family cottage, and she uses it as an escape from a really abusive partner. And as she's trying to make decisions about her future, she uncovers this delicious family history and some, you know, homeopathic tips 
along the way. I really liked it. It was, um, it had some of the usual, I come from a long line of witches book, which I've read a lot of those. So <laughs> I'm starting to uh, sense the recipe here, but I still like them. They're entertaining for me. And then I read Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. This is fabulous. This is a story of four sisters, Julia, Sylvie, Cecilia, and Emmeline. And they come from a really close-knit family in Chicago. Takes place in like the 1980s through sort of present day-ish. This is a delightful, not retelling, but sort of holds hands a little bit with little women. And so they loved little women as younger girls, and they each see themselves in characters from little women. I happen to be a huge fan of little women. And so that part of it definitely landed for me. And I liked seeing how they, you know, I'm, I'm Joe. No, I'm Joe, you know, kind of fighting over who gets to be Joe or and then when they're melancholy, they would say, I feel like Beth. You know, so it was I I liked that shorthand for the emotional landscape of their sisterhood. Their sisterhoods are so incredible and also very sad as we move throughout their lives. The oldest sister meets and marries a very tall man whose own family has sort of let him go, if you will. And they have a baby, Alice. And he loses it for reasons that are unknown to the sisters and his wife. He absolutely has a mental breakdown. Julia, his wife, leaves the area and takes Alice and goes to New York City. So then the the repercussions of this separation hits all the sisters differently. And they're navigating a world that they never expected Mm -hmm you know, to be fractured in this way. This is a novel that has a lot of important things about mental health. Actually, that's my through line for all of the books is is mental health and grief, sadly. But there's also good stuff about family and the importance of maintaining connections with your with your people. And then the, the husband is kind of a basketball nerd. And I think that was fun to read about too and how he uses basketball and his team of players and it as a huge support network and that's something that isn't often talked about especially in a book about sisterhood but he has his own brotherhood with this team and I think that was really beautifully navigated and I I loved this book it's brand new hot off the press March 14th this year yeah there you have it All right. I think that's it for us. I will be going on an adventure, so we will see how much I have to report next time. But I'm excited. Yeah, we both have adventures, actually. That's true. So we'll be... Who knows what we'll we'll be talking about next time. But it will be delightful. And until next time, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. 
And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.